0: Well, Jared, thanks a lot for coming to the Josh McCall podcast. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Hey, thanks for taking the time. And, uh, you know, you have a really interesting history, and it's, it's, it's something that's becoming a bit of a theme, too, is you started in an investment bank, um, and you worked for Lehman Brothers, then you wrote a book, you became an author, and now you're an internet personality, you run your own internet business, your own content business. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about this transition, how this came upon and how do you feel? Was it the right choice looking back? Or do you feel like, well, no, I want to go
1: back to an investment bank? No, it was absolutely the right choice. It was funny because I was uh, talking to my old boss at Lehman. This is the guy that I worked for 2001, 2002. And um, he told me a story of, you know, when I worked for him, we used to get the Gartman letter. I don't know if you know Dennis Gartman, but we used to get the Gartman letter at Lehman Brothers. And uh, he had probably the biggest financial newsletter. It was a daily letter. And I used to get this stuff and, you know, I liked it. I didn't, you know, I I didn't think his writing was the best, but I said, this is an amazing business. I was like, you can just get paid to write about finance. You know, I'd never heard of this before. So around 2003, you know, I had this idea in my head that I wanted to write a financial newsletter. So I had some, I had some ideas and, My initial idea was it would be sort of a a retail newsletter. I would charge a very small amount of money, about 150 bucks a year, and I would do personal finance stuff, and then I would uh, do seminars and stuff like that. And I figured if I had 1,000 subscribers, I would make $150,000 a year, and that would be enough. And um, then what happened was while I was at Lehman, I was put in charge of the ETF desk, and I was told to just grow the business because the business was very small. They said grow the business. So my idea was to do that through writing. So I started writing market commentary and sending it out to people. And it was very popular. And it grew and it grew and it grew. So by the time the bankruptcy came around, I had several thousand people on my list. And I said, you know, I can easily monetize this. So the day the bankruptcy, I, I sent out a message I said I'm going to start a newsletter, and you know, hundreds of people said I'll sign up. So I quit Lehman Brothers and I started the business. You know, I formed an LLC and I got some office space. And about six weeks later, I started sending out content again, and uh, I got a few hundred people to sign up, and that was the beginning of the newsletter. So that was in 2008, and uh, about that time, I was also approached to write a book about my time in Lehman Brothers. There was a literary agent that found me and asked me to write a book about it. And initially I said no, but six months later I came around and I said yes. Um, So while I, the early days of writing the newsletter, I was writing this book and that came out in 2011. So there's just been a bunch of stuff since then. I started writing for Malden Economics in 2014. I wrote another book in 2016. Uh, I'm I'm an op-ed columnist at Bloomberg. Um, I've taught, uh, finance at the undergraduate level and graduate level at school. Um, and I just, I know I had a radio show for the last two years, which is coming to an end tonight. Um, but we're going to convert that into a podcast. And my goal is to make this the number one finance podcast. So.
0: Yeah, that's really ambitious. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're really all in on, uh, becoming not just an internet personality, but really making this content machine work, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of people, you know, from the from the VC business, they go into Substack, right? That seems to be the technology platform to use, and also the the uh, the idea that you pay a relatively small amount. Um, and it's geared towards consumers. Is that still the model that you, you're using or you, you switch to a B2B model where you basically do it for hedge funds and other investment banks, small investment I banks? Do I, I do both
1: I do both. You know, my my customers, I have institutional customers and I have retail customers. So yeah. um, in terms of Substack, I don't use Substack. Uh, I use a different proprietary system. You know, Substack yeah. takes ten percent of revenue, so that's a little bit much for me. Uh, the nice thing about Substack is that they do handle all the payments and stuff like that. So I do that myself now, which is a little bit time-consuming, um, but yeah.
0: Yeah. When you when you look back, do you feel like the world of finance has changed quite a bit and that there's more... Um, there's more knowledge, or people are more aware of what's going on out there. Or Do you think we're still looking into a similar perplexing environment as it was ten years ago? It's just or we, we all have more opinions about it.
1: Well, I think I think more people are engaged in finance, but I would say that a lot of people have um, learned a lot of bad ideas and bad habits. You know, the meme stocks are a pretty good example. You know, I have a you know a Coast Guard friend on Facebook. Who trades the meme stocks? He's always posting about AMC and stuff like that. And he says these words like I've never heard before. He talks about like holding the line and ladder attack and stuff like that. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know, yeah, yeah. I don't know what this is, but it's not, it's not finance. Like I don't know what you're doing, but this is this, it, this isn't the right way to learn things. So yeah. um, that was, you know, when I, so I formed this entity two years ago called Jared Dillion Money, and that was where the radio sh- show came from. Uh, I did the radio show under Jared Dillian Money, and you know this is this is a personal finance platform. Um, so really teaching the basics, not just about investments, but also about debt and credit cards and mortgages and stuff like that. So um, that's what I've been doing for the past two years.
0: Yeah. Well, the I think what. What a lot of people are looking for, and I think this is where the meme stocks came from, is this this call option, right? So this this really um, high um, is it is it beta? Um, you want something that moves very much, even if the stock doesn't move so much, right? So we, it doesn't. It's more of a it's more of a big gambling, right? But but gambling not in that sense that the hedge funds always win. It's something where you can actually we have a weapon that works seemingly enough. We've seen this earlier this year where you as a 20 year old have a big enough weapon, you can become a millionaire overnight and the hedge funds give you that money. And that's pretty rare, right? I don't remember many of those situations in the last 10 years, when it seemed like the hedge funds are at a disadvantage, at least momentarily.
1: No, I mean, I think I think that's a narrative that got put forth after the GameStop incident. I don't think, I mean, look, there were, there were a couple of hedge funds that were harmed by that move in GameStop. Um, but I can tell you that retail investors You know, if you're trading call options on GameStop through Robinhood, um, people are making money off of you. You know, the market maker behind those trades is Citadel. Um, They have some very sophisticated people who understand volatility, who know how to model a volatility surface. Like, I mean, yes, like if you if you buy a call option on GameStop and it goes up very quickly, you'll make money. But you're at a huge disadvantage.
0: Yeah. So it is. It, it isn't something you can actually win at. At least, I mean, the odds are definitely against you, right? This hasn't changed.
1: I think. I think there was a short period of time, uh, about four or five months ago, six months ago, when you could win at it. But I think that window is closed.
0: Yeah, yeah. I feel. I feel the same thing. When, when you, when you wrote two books by now, you wrote first something that that is more of a description of what happened at Lehman, and then it's. Um, a novel that you wrote later on that is, you know, complete fiction, I assume. I don't know how many facts um, are in that novel. Uh, how, does, how does that compare? How, was it harder to write a novel than, than the accounts that you gave for Lehman? Or do you, do you feel it's the same amount of effort?
1: Oh, it was much harder to write a novel. I mean, just to put this in perspective, you know, Street Freak, my first book, the memoir, uh, it was 135,000 words, and I wrote it in eight months. All the Evil of This World, which is my novel, is 70,000 words, and I wrote it in five years. It was much, yeah. much, it was much harder, much yeah. harder.
0: Is that because you just wanted to do it perfect? Like, we noticed from Jordan in his first book took him 20 years to write because he rewrote it literally every week. Do You wanted to get the, the narrative perfect, or because there were so many layers you had to go through?
1: No, I mean, I, I was a perfectionist about it, but... The uh, creative process when it comes to actually, you know, dreaming up events and places and people you've never seen before, it's just a lot slower and it's a lot harder. You know, I tell people like that book is the hardest thing I've ever done and I never want to write fiction again, like it's too hard. But at the same time, I'm the most proud of it. Uh, I think I really think all the evil of this world is is an amazing book. And, you know, it's the best thing I've ever done.
0: What is it about? What story are you illustrating?
1: So it, it's about a trade that takes place March 2nd, the year 2000. Uh, it, it's about when uh, 3Com spun off Palm. I don't know if you remember Palm Pilots, but from uh, yeah. mm-hmm. 20 years ago. So it was a spinoff trade, and it's an options trade that takes place on 3Com but it involves seven different people from a clerk on the exchange to a broker on the exchange to a market maker at a bank to a hedge fund portfolio manager seven different people and, and it's it's just each chapter is their story and they're all interconnected and each chapter is written in a different voice as to that person's personality so each one is written completely different it was the most ambitious thing that i could possibly do and the engineering behind it was very difficult um but it it, yeah. it it worked out
0: and it comes to a common conclusion so they all see this through their own perspective but there's a common conclusion at the end yeah okay, can you yep. is that can you say that without spoiling yep. the book
1: yeah
0: that's that sounds really interesting i think there was a bunch of movies right they they give you something from the from a very different perspective and you can't really grasp who's who initially i think there was a, the latest movie Jason that time and i think it, it takes you a while to get into that 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 uh, that that sense of what's going on in that book, and it's hard to get you know to, to keep that narrative up and make it interesting enough for readers or for viewers. But then it has this, this amazing effect that you're like, whoa! I I I didn't see that coming. Right? It's 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 something that I couldn't predict as a reader, which is really yeah. rare because I think a lot of people with the media overconsumption, they they know what's going on. You know, you see a TV show and you have seen this ending like a hundred times. Yeah. Going a bit more into the finance topic, and you do daily com- commentary. What's your own personal opinion or something you've learned over time about inflation? And you know it's it's this big debate and we had deflation versus inflation was actually a big topic and we now feel I feel the majority has shifted to some form of inflation everybody knows how much it is. What is your personal opinion? where will this end and how high will inflation go or will we just see inflation disappearing?
1: Uh, I'm very much in the inflation camp. you know I actually on my radio show last night, I interviewed Peter Atwater who is at Financial Insights and he really studies uh, behavior and psychology and stuff like that in the markets. And I said to Peter I was like, you know, I think in inflation is 90% a psychological phenomenon. And he says I disagree with you. I think it's 100%. So what's happened in the last year is that we've had a reversal of 40 years of dis- disinflationary psychology and we suddenly switched to an inflationary psychology. So this is how this works. If you think that there is going to be inflation, if you think prices are going to rise, if you think there are going to be shortages, then you accelerate economic activity. You buy more of things, you buy faster. And everybody yeah. doing this together drives prices up. So this, you know, what happened when Volcker became Fed chair back in 1979, you know, he it was about reversing the psychology and he had to raise interest rates a lot and crush the economy in order to reverse that psychology so there's no appetite to do that right now so you know inflation is five percent change it's undoubtedly going to go higher i don't know how fast it's going to go higher but it will go higher
0: yeah yeah what what i find mesmerizing and I, i agree with you it's definitely there's a lot of psychology in there it what. What I find mesmerizing is that we see bond yields that haven't moved at all right there. Like 10-year bond is what, 0.2%. Uh, if you are a somewhat rational investor, how can you, with 5% projected inflation per year, right? So that's at least 30-40% of your bond that goes away after a five-year period. for 10 years, even worse. How would you even... Think about accepting this this rate. Like, well, why is, why does this market even exist if the yields are so low? Everybody should have should have gone away, right? This money should be gone, and I don't know where it would go into, whatever, buying a factory in Thailand or where it should be.
1: Yeah, I mean, rates should be higher. Um, you know, interest rates are a function of a couple of things: the supply and demand for loanable funds. They're also a function of the supply and demand for treasury securities. I mean, ultimately, like if there's more demand for bonds and like it. It doesn't necessarily have to come from U.S. investors. It can come from overseas or wherever, you know, also from the Fed. I mean, the Fed is still buying, you know, $120 billion a month. So, I mean, that's where the demand's coming from. So it's really, you know, this is you've you've identified a mispriced security. Uh, the question is, can you do anything about it? Well, you can just avoid bonds and invest in stocks and commodities and real estate.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we hit Harley on, and his his ETF is kind of a, um, a call option for increases, increasing interest rates um, yeah. over the next couple of years. And it's a slow moving, like, you don't lose a ton. Um, you don't have a huge negative carry, so to speak, right? You only lose a little bit every year. And uh, I think everyone agrees with this, but, but obviously it's down so far, right? So the last 12 months, it hasn't done so well because the yields haven't really botched at all. And I find this mesmerizing. And I agree with you, maybe it's the, the Fed who, who creates all this demand. But I don't know if even the Fed is enough firepower for this, right? It seems to be a gigantic move because it should be more like 5 or 6% yields for 10 years. I think that's what we, all the psychology of most investors is now, right? If we assume the psychology of most traders already changed to such a high inflation expectation.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I mean, you know, this, this move in rates from, you know, 1.8 to 1.15, a lot of people, I mean, most people don't really know why this has happened. I mean even the people predicting lower rates don't even r- really know why this has happened. So nobody, has a, <laughs> nobody, nobody yeah. has a good explanation for it. Yeah, yeah.
0: Do you... But do you feel like we see much lower uh, rates and yields first, I mean, effective rates, before we see higher inflation price in, or we, we, we will definitely see interest rates going up? I, pre- I, have, I,
1: I have pretty high conviction that interest rates have bottomed. Um, yeah. and, I, and I think they will go higher. I just, I don't know when that'll happen or how fast it'll happen. I also don't know what the catalyst will be. But I, I do think rates have bottomed.
0: Yeah. When you when we go into another topic that a lot of people are kind of worried about, and I've been very worried vocally on the podcast, is we've seen gdp growth relatively slow over the years I and mean, we've really seen a population isn't growing as much so that gdp growth we have population growth and we have productivity growth these two get combined right and uh, population growth has slowed quite a bit uh, that's one part of it but also it seems like productivity growth at least the way we measure it uh, might be just a measurement problem productivity growth and that speed of deals these is it hasn't it hasn't been what we expected it to be over the last 20 years and um, we see that people seemingly have a better lifestyle. They have way more information. They have all these entertainment options. But we don't feel like we, we get much more for the same amount of investment. And that's the lacking productivity growth. Do you feel like, A, is this is real? And B, is this something we can do about it? And should we do something about it?
1: No, I think it is real. Um, you know, I, I heard something interesting. I don't remember who said it. But, um, you know, if we had this, we had these massive productivity gains 20 years ago. Uh, back when the Internet first came around and it, it dramatically increased productivity. We were having productivity growth of like six percent uh, and that's gone down over time. And you'd say, well, you know, technology has gotten so much better. Well, you know, the way people use technology has changed. You know, for example, you used to work an eight hour day okay, and you would work for eight hours and now people work for four hours and they're on Facebook and Twitter for four hours so they work yep. the same amount of time but the internet has created diversions where they're actually not being as productive okay and if you think about gdp all it really is is the number of people working times how many hours they work times the productivity and if gdp growth is slowing i mean one of the things you identified is population growth is slowing down uh number two how many hours they work people are simply working less average hourly earnings has gone down you know, you yeah. hear these discussions about working four-day weeks and stuff like that. People work way less than they did 20 years ago. And, yeah. and we just talked about the productivity part of it. So, yeah, I mean, you know, we used to have a consistent GDP growth of about 4% a quarter. Now it's about 2 to 3% a quarter. Um, and, you know, if you look at Europe and Japan, it's lower than that. And that's where we're going.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah Europe and Japan, they, they barely moved the last 10 years at least, right? So yeah. it's like 1% is already achievement. Um, on a quarterly basis, do you feel like there's something that policy-wise we could do? I mean, I always feel like capital allocation is broken. That's why we have such low um, productivity growth because we put it in enterprises already have way too much money, and we give them almost interest-free money, and it is almost um, interest-free, and we we. But they don't have a lot of opportunities to grow as much. I mean, they're still growing on a total basis, but on a per- on a percentage basis, they're not growing as much. And we, we kind of price out all the other businesses, smaller medium-sized companies. Basically anything that's not in the S&P 500 doesn't have a chance to survive anymore. That's a very harsh picture. But that's sometimes how it appears to me, and that's where the capital should go because there it gives you a higher rate of return. But somehow that's not, if my thesis is right. Then why hasn't it transpired to other investors? Right, everyone is into this big trend following, bigger, 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 which makes sense to an extent, right? But it's it's like this: the, the stock market is trend following, the venture market is trend following. Nobody tries something new. It seems from time to time.
1: Well, I think that's I think that's kind of reversing a little bit. I mean, we we had a bit we had a bit of reversal between big stocks and small stocks uh back about six to nine months ago and you had you you saw a a period of time where small cap stocks were outperforming and then it kind of went sideways for a little bit but i think it's going to happen again um yeah i mean you know you've you've eventually you've seen some crazy stuff because big tech companies like you said basically have a zero cost of capital uh and by the way you know when companies you know if they have a zero cost of capital and they don't have any attractive investment opportunities, then they buy back stock. And that's another yeah. thing that's been going on for the last 10 years.
0: Yeah. Well, when you, when you think of the buyback of stocks, do you think it has, is immediately negative for productivity growth?
1: Uh, I don't think it's negative or positive. I don't think there's a relationship there. Um, okay, I don't know.
0: It's it's just because management all they have, really have to do is buy back their stock, right? To get yeah, get the stock price up and get that compensation. They don't have to in a way. They don't have to do anything, right? That's the yeah. the basic relationship there. That's basically broken. So management is disincentivized to actually try anything new, which which is kind of normal for big companies, right? Yeah, it's big all companies about it don't
1: it's risk all it, that right? much. Yeah.
0: yeah, I I feel like and I don't know if you read Nassim Taleb, he came out with this thesis and said, well, we really have to look into individual entrepreneurship in the sense of risk-taking, right? So we have to take a risk, do something useful for society, and then we scale it up so everyone in the world can use this advantage that you, you've you come up with, right? And It could be on Reddit, it could be anywhere. It doesn't have to be an actual business, but it's it's a personal risk that people take. Do you feel like, and he, he makes it sound like this is a big part of, of the missing productivity growth, that there's not enough distributed risk-taking, but obviously his book is about fragility. Um, do you feel like that's something where, when, when you look at people, and you just mentioned your friend from, from Facebook, um, that you follow on Facebook, do you feel like we're, we're returning the corner there as well, where we, we see this individual risk taking is really carrying on in the 20 to 30 year old group, or that's something that's still kind of alien?
1: Uh, I, I mean, I think, I think it's just a function of the capital markets you know because I've, i saw this before i saw this in the dot com bubble and you had a bunch of people trading and participating in the markets and that was a, you know that was a short period of time that lasted yeah. for a, a year or two and then it disappeared so i think the same thing is going to happen yeah
0: but that's that's on the on the trading side, people who buy stocks, right? But people yeah. also take individual risks, like they they innovate something, they 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 put some code in GitHub, right? They just they come up with a little piece of knowledge that the whole humanity can use. I mean, that's kind of what we want, right? So we have a bunch of people who go out there slay the dragon, but we have lots of dragons out there, and then they come back and give us the gold. I think that's that's kind of the, the metaphysical idea how we can fix productivity growth.
1: I don't know if there's more or less risk taking uh now than 10 or 20 years ago it's kind of hard for me to tell um if you look at uh, a chart of business formation uh it's absolutely exploded in the last year um and a lot of that is you know out of necessity people lost their jobs during the pandemic they had to do something so they started a business but i you know i tend to think that we still have um you know pretty good amounts of risk-taking in our economy
0: yeah, it's very hard to tell. There's no good statistics for it, right? So it's it's definitely a bit of a gut feeling. Um, it's, I would agree that people are seeking out more and more that way, but it's it's there's definitely a financing issue. But we see tons of um, early stage financing, right? That's that's what we call it the bubble. That obviously there's not a billion star, billions of them that are founded are being funded, but. It is a bubble in terms of valuations the ones that have potential to become a unicorn. But in between there isn't a ton. That seems to be the issue right now. But at least there's a ton of early stage funding for startups.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you go back to like, I mean, I think it's actually gotten better. I think in 2018, uh, you saw some pretty crazy valuations of startups. Uh, The scooter company, so Bird and Lime, had multi-billion dollar valuations. Uh, you, You saw the dog walking app, WAG, have a billion dollar valuation Uh, that's, that, that's kind of come down over time. You know, a lot of this was, you know, uh, driven by a rush into VC funds and also SoftBank. Uh, you know, SoftBank alone is probably about 50% of the VC market and push valuations higher. So,
0: yeah, yeah, it's definitely the, the 500 pound gorilla there. Um, Stephen told me this in the last episode that there is a, um, a Chinese um, investment vehicle that has about a billion, no is it a billion? A trillion dollars worth of of firepower that invested over the last five years already. So it's basically five times the size of SoftBank. I think SoftBank's 200 billion, right? Two $100 billion funds.
1: I didn't hear about that. I didn't hear about that.
0: Yeah, so it's, a, it's some state-run vehicle. And that's, that's where this <laughs> bubble came upon, right? This giant, enormous uh, bubble in uh, Chinese tech. That wow. seems to be deflating now. Who knows? Maybe it's just a momentarily a buying opportunity. It's just buying the debt. Well, When you look at, at at stuff that's not crazy overvalued, where you feel like this is a this is an opportunity to go long, where would you look right now? Is it energy stocks? For instance, that seems to be... Well, when I talk to seasoned investors, they keep telling me about energy stocks and it seems to be very undervalued. But where are other opportunities where you feel like people should take a look at?
1: Uh... Energy, basic materials, agriculture, real estate, uh, any inflation-sensitive stuff. Um,
0: you know, yeah. energy energy's
1: had a, a nice little pullback uh, in the last month or two, which provides a pretty good entry point. I mean, you know, I was early on the energy trade. In fact, a little bit too early. Um, yeah. I, I I got involved before oil prices went negative, so that you know I had a rocky start to that trade. Um, yeah. but, um, but that's, but that's worked out beautifully. And I expect that it's going to continue to work out. A lot of people like the uranium trade. Uh, I think that's got a lot more legs in it. Um, trying to think of what else, um, you know, financials look pretty good. I, you know, if you think that rates are going to go up, which I think they are, uh, you know, the curve will get a bit steeper, um, banks, insurance companies, stuff like that. Um, you know, and you've seen some of the things you've seen in the last couple of days in tech, you saw some big earnings fees. And stocks trade down off of earnings. So, you know, look, I'm just I'm kind of a one note Samba. Like I say the same thing all the time. You want exposure to inflation and you want exposure to value. And I think that's going to work for the next five years.
0: Yeah. And you you, you, you would keep saying that despite being, you know, we see this trend following where we, where we see these massive companies that are they don't, they don't really fit into the value uh, characteristics at all, right? We see Tesla that, that has no value to it from a from a, from a value investor standpoint and seems to be skyrocketing or has skyrocketed over the last 24 months. You, you feel like this that the growth is, or we will see a, a mean reversal, right? So the value stocks have done really not so well the last two years. We'll really see the heyday in the next couple of years.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, that's interesting. I mean it's 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 definitely a tough position to be in because if you've done this the last 2 years that you're sitting on a bunch
1: you're sitting on some losses right? Well, I haven't been doing it the last 2 years. I've been doing it about the last 9 months and okay. it's it's done pretty well so far. So, yeah.
0: Um one thing that goes a little bit outside of finance maybe I wanted to pick your brain on is a bit finance it has this this history of really Steep innovation, right? It comes out investment. It comes up with a new structure of product, right? And we are sort of CDOs, and uh, it has this this massive amount of of you know basically it sets up a bunch of contracts, and uh, we we'll, we'll have a new product, and we have this completely new environment. Do you feel like this? But it seems a bit of an, an, a zero sum game, right? It seems like an empty an empty innovation that's being done because. It seems the investment banks win, right? But but nobody else. It doesn't. It doesn't really leverage itself out into the economy in terms of capital allocation. Is that something that you would share? Um, This this agreement that investment banks innovate, but their innovations are, are like really they're basically to their own benefit, and they never really make it all the way into the economy.
1: No, I I would disagree with that. I mean, there's a lot of people I never wrote about this, but there's some people out there who have written about the financialization of the economy. Right. Yeah, Um,
0: exactly.
1: And, you know, there there are very few um, good financial innovations. And if you go back over the last 100 years, probably the biggest one is the 30 year fixed rate mortgage. Right. That enabled 70 percent of people in the country to own a house. That was a good innovation. Also in the mortgage market, you know, the mortgage-backed security was a good innovation. Securitization was a good thing for the mortgage market. It made the mortgage market more liquid. It lowered rates. So I think that was a good thing. Um, When you start talking about, you know, things like CDOs and complex derivatives, I like to call that unicorn piss. You know, that's just complexity for the sake of complexity. Um, And I, I think when it comes to financial innovations, like complexity is really the enemy. And I really... You know, I don't know. I mean, I I hesitate to say this, but I think in the last 100 years, I think we've thought of everything. I don't think there's any more ways to slice and dice what we already have. I don't think there's going to be much in the way of financial innovation, and I think that's kind of reflected in the stock prices of the banks, you know, which haven't really, you know, they've done okay, but they haven't really done all that well since 2007,
0: 2006. So, um, yeah. yeah. It's it's, it's like, investors assume there is some negative surprises in these balance sheet and these p and outs but that that's kind of my theory my personal theory and why people are not so bullish on financials um when you when you look into the world of, of DeFi, decentralized finance right crypto do you think it's it's and i think we both will agree um that it's a bubble but do you think it's a crazy bubble it's it's but it or it has the potential to really basically get rid of all the banking out there right it, it's all the banking become computers right that run in the cloud and run on the blockchain do you think that's realistic
1: i think it's realistic 20 years from now um yeah. and this is the, this is the cycle that all new technologies follow right so you have a new technology like the internet back in the late 90s and you have this massive investment bubble and then it deflates and then you have this period of time over the next 10 or 15 years where people forget about it okay and that and if you look at a chart of the nasdaq over the last 20 years that's what happened it you know it, it peaked in 2000 it bottomed in 2002 and then it didn't do anything for 10 years so i think i think bitcoin is going to not just bitcoin but you know crypto and DeFi is going to follow the same pattern i think we are in the midst of a bubble right now i think two or three years from now people will have kind of forgotten about it but these are important innovations and yeah 20 years from now we might have the ability to do this
0: yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the whole, we, we kind of have this almost Soviet-style state-supported banking system, right? So if you set these interest rates, and we kind of very interested in the stability of the banks and how they run their business, which is very anathema to an open market economy, right? But we, we, we've been so concerned, and we've been burned in 2008 by exactly that. And I think DeFi is kind of would absolve us of this responsibility, right? So we just, we just push it to the blockchain and say, okay, well, it's, it's going to work, right? Do you see that's, that's the possibility that we kind of leave that, all this regulation behind on this, this very static banking industry and we go to something that's much cheaper and much faster and you know, basically zero transaction costs?
1: I mean, the best product doesn't always win. Okay, I just I you know I long like, it should, I should no. <laughs> I mean it should, but the best product doesn't always win. So True. I mean maybe maybe over a long enough time horizon. I just think it's going to take a really long time. I think people are a little over yeah. overly enthusiastic about it right now. It's 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 you know 2040 is when we should be talking about this. Yeah, yeah.
0: 2040. Have you heard of the singularity? Records Files steam? Yeah. Well, what, what do you feel? Is because you just mentioned 2040, do you think there's more happening in 2040 or it's just like because you think it's a 20-year cycle?
1: A 20-year cycle,
0: yeah. Okay,
1: okay.
0: Yeah, because there's there's so much tech that could, you know, could kind of change our life forever. Kind of what you said about the internet. And it kind of did, right? But much it took much longer to, to, to change people as well. Yeah. Yeah. It took 15, 20 years to actually make their minds stretch. When you... Another thing is, you know, we have finance. We have as an innovation, but it's also often the starting point of we see if um, complex systems that, that we adopt. Um, think about socialism, capitalism, how much state-run um, um, uh, an organization should be. We see it manifesting in finance, right? So when when you go to Europe, you have the the regu- the um, the regulations that you see in the financial markets are extremely well, I would say comprehensive, right? So banks are basically a piece of, of the government. That is to an extent true in the US as well with certain credit unions, but I think investment banks shows that there's, a, there's another wall to this. Do you think finance is a good indicator of how well an economy does? Say, we, we compare different countries. Would you feel like we can, we can analyze just the financial industry and then see, well, this is what we see in the financial industry and that's why we feel like this country is relatively developed, relatively free market, or that's not a good indicator?
1: I think it's a good indicator. I mean, I can't think of any too many times in history when the economy has done well but the banking system is not. You know, the banking system yeah. has always been, um, uh, you know, an indicator of the health of the economy. So, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I've been reading Ray Dalio's book,
0: right? So his 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 thoughts about these ninety-year cycles and uh, that basically it's a currency cycle. But obviously, the banking system is is, is very um, much involved in this. And it's how, how a currency, you know, goes through a crisis and then becomes really strong again. And uh, the banking system is certainly a reflector of this. Though so he doesn't really mention it, right? So it's, it seems so hard to value the banking system or banks at all because all their PL statements are statements are based on, on, on the market, right? They value it against the market, which is what they should. But if the market changes or moves by 50%, then their P&L is worthless.
1: Uh, yeah, I don't have any ideas on that. I don't. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's it's leading it's leading relatively far out. Um, anyways, um, it's kind of all I had. Jared. oh yeah, okay. yeah, that's kind of all I had. I don't have a ton more questions. Um, I think we've been much quicker than I thought. It's been only like thirty minutes, right?
1: Yeah, I I'm pretty succinct with my answers. So
0: yeah. <laughs> I noticed that. I noticed that you're very clear. You know what you want. I think this is awesome. And not a lot of people. Not a lot of people have that in, um, generally, but especially in the financial industry. Yeah. Well, one more thing that I had, and you know, we can, we can make a few cuts here. Personalities, and I think finance is really driven by, the, by, by major personalities. Who are people that you admire, right? People that you listen to, but you also admire because they've done something incredible in the
1: industry. Who, who do you listen to? Uh, I had a boss at Lehman Brothers who was very, very smart and also very, very ruthless and very, very focused. And he's been very successful in the industry. And um, he was a mentor to me. Um, he put me in charge of the ETF desk. He gave me complete freedom to run it. Um, you know, and uh, he was a terrific guy, and I have a lot of respect for him. Um, trying to think of, yeah. I mean, in terms of trading, and you know, I mean, of course, like you know, a guy like Stan Druckenmiller is the king. And uh, you know, I've I've read a lot of the things that he's written or said and I've tried to emulate my trading style off of him. Uh not as successfully. He's better than I am, but um you know, I, I guess that's about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there seems to be there seems to be a certain in a certain mindset. And I find that, that sometimes quite interesting there's this mindset of you know there's doom impending doom and there's people who always have go out with the, with the opinion of the impending doom and obviously they're right because doom is always coming right so it's always there's always the day where, where, where the market crashes i think that's the cycle part right that the Fed can do whatever they want maybe the Fed can actually solve that problem but i guess we're just going to make it worse if we keep throwing money that way um but it I'm curious from from how you when you look at commentators, there seems to be a part of that market that is very very stable, very static in their opinions. So, you know, they have a similar prediction whenever you ask them. And then there's people who change their prediction on the other end of the spectrum, like in an instant. There's this this uh, I think it's an analyst. Um, I forgot which bank he was working on. He he literally made within four weeks the prediction that the Bitcoin when it was still going up hit 150,000. And then four weeks later, he changed his mind and said, oh, he's going to go down to 15,000. Because the market, <laughs> and I'm, I'm what changed. And the market action changed, right? The, the movement, the, the, the basically trend following, the trend um, where big banks yeah, had I, it I have some I
1: have some thoughts on this. You know what's interesting? So, you know, as you said, I'm sort of a financial personality on the internet. And, um, you know, it's, it's a competitive market. You know, there's a lot of people offering commentary and advice. And the people who are most successful financially it doing what I do never change their minds. Never change mm-hmm. their minds. Uh take a guy like Lacey Hunt, okay? He's been saying interest rates are going lower forever. He's been saying we're having deflation forever. He hasn't changed his mind. He has followers. He has disciples. He has people who hang on his every word because it's this one view that they believe in. You know, yeah. and I'm I'm am I'm more in the second camp. Like I change my mind all the time. I can believe one thing one day and a couple of weeks later I can believe the exact opposite thing. And in terms of my business, in terms of running a newsletter and getting subscriptions, it's actually not that good of a thing because, you know, people want you to be consistent over time. But yeah. you know, the markets, they have this property called non-stationarity. It's a game where the rules are constantly changing. Okay, so you can do one thing in the markets and it works for a while, but then the rules are going to change and you have to do something different. So you have to be very adaptable, but it's not, it's, it it, it doesn't, it's not really conducive to selling commentary or advice.
0: So would the answer be that if, if you come to a certain conclusion, and let's assume you're, you're right with that. Um. You just have to, like, wait out the trade. And as longer you can wait out the trade, it's better. And I obviously see this with Warren Buffett. I think a lot of people are overlooking that fact. He didn't do much in his youth, right, in his 20s and 30s. I mean, he did stuff. He educated himself. But he wasn't, like, a magical investor. And he started investing, and nothing happened for, like, what, 10, 15, 20 years? And then suddenly, it really became a bigger numbers, and now the numbers are massive. But what I think is so, 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 so unique about him is that he basically has one similar. It has changed over time and morphed, but he has one similar investment style. But he's a, he's seeing the returns now compounded over fifty years, and that's what giving him what's giving him these big numbers. And he had to be very consistent to execute this. So, so. Is that the right theory? You come to a certain conviction and then you you just wait for it to come true and hopefully you're still alive when it comes true?
1: So there's two parts to that. And one part of it is you need a lot of patience. And Warren Buffett has, that's his one virtue more than anything. He has a lot of patience. And you also have to manage risk and conserve capital so that when your trade is out of favor, which it inevitably will be, you can manage your drawdowns and stay in the trade.
0: Yeah. But it's psychologically so hard, right? Because that might mean you, for 20 years, you don't see, you don't see any, anything in your PL, and l the only losses.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, not many people can last 20 years. I mean, you probably saw, uh, you heard about this, uh, a guy named Charles DeVoe. Have you heard about this? I have not. He was, uh, he. what was the name of the firm he ran? International Value Advisors, I think, IBA. Uh, he was a value manager, a deep value guy, almost distressed, but like a deep value guy. And yeah. you know back 20 years ago he had assets of 20 billion and it went down to 1 billion and after 20 years he climbed to the top of a building and jumped off and he yeah. committed suicide. Yeah. yeah, I mean race basically right when value just started to outperform. Yeah. So I mean it's yeah, I mean it's brutal. Like you it takes an incredible amount of patience and an incredible amount of conviction to say that you know I'm right and I'm going to stick through this no matter what happens, you know, just yeah. on a micro level, you know, you know I'm in the inflation trade and that's been out of favor for the last couple of months, and that's been a little bit difficult. I I've taken a drawdown of about six percent, which is pretty manageable, you know. But you you know, price determines your mood, and it's very difficult to hold that kind of conviction when you're sustaining losses like that.
0: Yeah. It's kind of a buy and forget, right? You should almost never look at your portfolio again yeah. if, you, if that's your strategy, right? Where you accept massive drawdowns if you feel you're going to be vindicated once that that day comes. It's unpredictable when it comes. Um, I think, well, when I, when I see, you know, the, the Eric Vina <laughs> had that book about the dead philosophers, the most famous philosophers are dead, and uh, unfortunately, uh, it's it's you know, it takes a long time for your fame to become to 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 outlive yourself. Um, I feel like this is what, what, what very convicted investors are in a similar position, right? They, they 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 build their philosophy, they hang on to it, they 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 and they're probably right, but during in their lifetime they rarely see they only see the negatives in terms of social recognition because they don't get any, right? Everyone hates them and they're an outlaw. But then they really have to wait until the end or often they don't even see it in their lifetime, they see being vindicated and being right. Yeah. Yeah. That seems yeah. to be terrible. I mean, it's a predicament, right? You don't want to be depressed for the next 40 years yeah. because you only have one life. Even yes. if you're right. I, I find that <laughs> an amazing trait yeah. that, that, that you can be in such a position for so long and keep that conviction.
1: Yeah,
0: It almost it strikes me as something super national. You know, you, you, you're, it's like coming out of a, out of a different sphere. It's it's why go through all this trouble? Like 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 if you don't necessarily won't get a return. It's it's always religious, right? Yeah. Yeah. There seems to be a connection that people don't really make. So I feel like there's a religion there's a connection between religion and the these these very stoic investors <coughs> in 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 the industry that, as you said, haven't really changed their mind and are willing to sit it out forever.
1: Yeah, I, I you know I don't like taking drawdowns. Uh, I'm a little bit of a wimp, so you know I can, you know I can I, I have the ability to change my mind. Um, you know, but with yeah. regard to the inflation trade, I mean I think this is I think this is a secular trade, and in the in the context of a couple of months, I think that's a that's a pretty short time amount of wait. So I'm willing to stick through it.
0: Yeah. Well, there's a there's a huge amount of. Of, of research that we know, right, about the technologies are deflationary and that all the, the, the countries besides China, and obviously China is very deflationary, all the other countries in Africa are coming online one day, and, and it keeps continuing. Um, but we print so much money, it needs to go somewhere, right? So for me, it's really mesmerizing versus black hole. We, we can say, yeah, asset prices, certainly, but it's just this massive amount of money that we printed, 60% of all the dollars ever in the last, what, 18 months? Yeah. But, but where did they go? It cannot be 5% inflation. That's, that's, that's nothing.
1: Yeah. Um it's uh again Did you it, ship it off somewhere?
0: Like it's, to to, it's, uh, to another country?
1: It's it's not about money supply, it's not about any of these variables, it's not about productivity or China or anything, it's about psychology. It's it's hundred yeah. percent about psychology.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, see your argument. I mean that's certainly true. You know, if we, we all outrun each other. We're gonna be it's gonna be a big stampede. Everyone wants yeah. to be first. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah going to start find a way to, to spend money um, Jared that was really interesting thanks for sharing your thoughts thanks for yeah, coming thanks on the podcast you, you, I like your really succinct answers <laughs> you know what you want I love that